She cheated on me. He's abusive. She won't sleep in the same room as me. He loves work more than our family. She's driving us into debt. He won't stop looking at the internet. She's a terrible mother. He's a terrible father. I love someone else. We've both changed. I've been hurt too many times. Our marriage isn't happy anymore. These are reasons that you could hear today among many for someone to get a divorce from their spouse. Are these legitimate reasons? Are they all legitimate? Are none of them legitimate? Are some of them legitimate? What would Jesus say in response to these people? And we we don't need to wonder that. We don't need to wonder what he would say because Jesus addresses this very issue in the Sermon on the Mount. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, walking through a series called Following the Fulfillment. This series is all about showing us, first and foremost, who is Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Jesus is the fulfillment of his promise to send us a Savior from our sin and from death and from hell. And because he's the fulfillment, the gospel also calls us to follow him. The gospel calls us to forsake our lives, to forsake our sin, and to follow him. And the Sermon on the Mount is a a pinnacle moment in the scriptures where Jesus, for three chapters, teaches his disciples very specifically what it looks like to follow him in this world. Calls them to unique, specific ways to follow him in real life. And this morning, why are we talking about divorce this morning? Because Jesus taught on this. We're talking about this because it's the next text, because we believe in expository preaching, and we, we take what God has said to us, and we, and we study it, and we listen to it, and seek to apply it. And Jesus taught his disciples how to follow him on the subject of divorce. And we want to hear what he has to say this morning. So I want to read this passage to you, just two verses, Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Let's read these two verses And then this morning, we're going to answer four questions about divorce from these verses. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Read it one more time. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm aware as we enter into this text that 
that in some way divorce has probably touched every single one of our lives and that it is a difficult and sensitive subject. And I pray that God would help us today to hear what he has said, to submit to it, to respond to it appropriately in faith for his glory. Four questions about divorce that I want to ask today. First, a larger question before we get into the details of this text. A big question, how does God feel about divorce? How does God feel about divorce? Some may object that God doesn't have feelings, but Scripture clearly depicts God as a God who rejoices and a God who grieves and a God who enters into relationship with his world and his people. And Scripture tells us how God feels about divorce. And, and the reason I want to ask this question first is because we need to share the heart of God about this issue before we get into the questions. If, if we just begin by asking all of the questions related to divorce, then it, it's, it, it's almost like we are preparing ourselves for a crash <laughs> instead of learning how to drive. We, we, want to, we want to know what God's heart is on these things. We want to align our heart up with his heart as we then hear the specific instructions of this passage. And so what does God feel about divorce? And the first part of this answer I want, to, I want to say is that divorce grieves the heart of God. Divorce grieves the heart of God. And it grieves the heart of God because it goes against his good and original design for marriage. Divorce grieves the heart of God because it goes against his good and original design for marriage. If you turn over a few pages to Matthew 19, a passage that we'll look at more in depth later in the series, but in Matthew 19, uh, the same topic comes up. And this time the Pharisees come to Jesus, and in Matthew 19, verse 3, they ask Jesus, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I want you to notice here that before Jesus answers their question, he points them back to God's original creative design. He answered, Matthew 19, 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, before Jesus is willing to discuss questions on divorce as they bring them to him. He says, let's remember what marriage is. Let's remember God's original design. Let's remember that, that before there was sin in the world, marriage was in the world as part of God's good world. One man and one woman in a lifelong covenant union before him. This was God's good design. Everything in that original creation was good. And the creation of man and woman was very good. Marriage was very good. And divorce is not part of that plan. It is outside of God's good intention in creation, and therefore it always grieves the heart of God. It always grieves the heart of God. If, if the fall had not occurred, if sin did not exist, there would be no divorce in this world. It's not part of his intention, and it grieves the heart of God. Yet, with that said, we also need to understand that divorce is not always sinful. Divorce is not always sinful. Kevin DeYoung has a wonderful sermon on divorce that helped me a lot this week, and, and he puts it very clearly. Is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. 
Is every divorce therefore sinful? No. Get that. Is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. Is every divorce therefore sinful? No. You know, there's a couple examples in Scripture that, that should teach us this. One we saw earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, at this point, did not realize that Mary was pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when she was pregnant, what did he think? He thought that she had been unfaithful. And the text tells us in Matthew 1 that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. And in that passage, Joseph is held up as being righteous in those actions. It's, he's not depicted as sinning for that action. He's held as being righteous in those actions to divorce her quietly. Unwilling to put her to shame, his compassion is put on display. But nothing, nothing negative is said about his resolve to divorce her in that circumstance. An even weightier example comes from the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, God is speaking to Judah. At this point, Israel has already experienced exile. And God's old covenant relationship with, with his people, similar to in the new covenant, was depicted at times as a marriage with his people, a covenant of marriage with his people. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, Listen to what the Lord says to the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So there in the Old Testament is God himself depicting the marriage covenant that he had with his people, them being unfaithful, committing spiritual adultery in their idolatry, and God saying, I sent them away with a decree of divorce. And we would not charge God with unrighteousness in that action. They were unfaithful, and God in that in that marriage covenant with his people, sent them away with a decree of divorce. So, so here's what we need to understand. Divorce always grieves the heart of God, but it does not always invite the wrath of God. Divorce always grieves the heart of God, but it does not always invite the wrath of God. It is not always sinful. And this is important to understand for a few reasons as we apply this. One, if, if, if you or someone you know is divorced, grieve that. The Lord grieves it. Grieve it. Grieve with the divorce because divorce is always painful. There's no, there's no divorce that's not painful. There's no divorce that is good. There's no divorce that is part of God's good design. So grieve that. But, but, if you know someone who's divorced, don't make assumptions about that person because this person may not have sinned. We need to resist the temptation to stigmatize divorce and to harm people who have been sinned against. Grieve with the divorce. Don't make assumptions about the divorce. And then this morning, if, if you're here and have experienced divorce, or maybe someone you know has experienced divorce because you were sinned against, know that God is not disappointed in you. God is not against you because your marriage ended. If you were sinned against. Actually, God invites you to himself with your grief. 
God invites you to himself in that situation and holds every tear in his bottle. And he calls you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And so if you have experienced divorce because you were sinned against, know that God is not disappointed in you. God is not looking down on you. You're not a second-class son or daughter, but God invites you to himself in that. Divorce always grieves the heart of God, but it is not always sinful. And we need to set that foundation to then go to our second question. Our second question is this, on what grounds is divorce permissible? On what grounds is divorce permissible? Now, this was a debated question within Judaism at the time of Christ. So, a debated question within Judaism at the time of Christ. There were, there were two schools of thought on this issue at this time. The minority school among the Pharisees believed that divorce was only permissible for adultery. That was the minority view. Divorce is only permissible when adultery has been committed. But the majority school, the, the, the majority of Pharisees and scribes believed that divorce was permissible for any reason whatsoever. And the disagreement centered on a passage in Deuteronomy 24, which is referenced in our text. Deuteronomy 24. You can turn there with me uh, to see this for yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Both of these schools based what they believed about the, the legitimacy of divorce on this passage, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. It's a lot of ifs in that sentence, right? But look at the very beginning of it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Because he has found some indecency in her. Those two words, some indecency, were the, the, the words that these two schools split over. What does that mean? What does some indecency mean? Now, it's, it's about as abstract in our language as it was in theirs. Some indecency. Now, the majority school believed some indecency meant just that. Some indecency, any, anything indecent. In other words, anything that you don't like about your wife gives you a reason to divorce her. And so this could be something as serious as adultery, but it could be something as frivolous as she overcooked my chicken. There's actual documents that show that was the legitimate grounds for divorce in this majority school. And we saw in Matthew 19, they asked, is it lawful for someone to divorce his wife for any reason? You could get out of a marriage just like that because you could find something, anything you wanted about your wife that says, this does not please me. I do not want to be married to this person anymore. That was the majority school in Jesus' day. That's who he's interacting with, really, in this passage. But there was a minority school that believed that those words were a, essentially a euphemistic way of referring to adultery and sexual morality. And there's good evidence that was the case. And as we'll see, Jesus lands on that side of the issue. That, that, is, that any indecency is a way to refer to sexual immorality and adultery. 
But this, these were the two schools at the time of Christ. And, and the, the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus seems to be correcting and interacting with are those that took the, the view, the majority view, that divorce can be for any reason, any time. Well, what grounds did Jesus teach? Let's look again at our passage. It was also said, Matthew 5, 31 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here we see Jesus clearly sided with the minority school. He taught that sexual immorality was the only legitimate ground for divorce. And so what does that mean? Sexual immorality, what is that phrase referring to? It's, it, it's actually a, a pretty broad phrase in the New Testament. That, that phrase can be used for all sorts of sexual sin. But I think it would be wrong for us to, to say that any, any action of sexual morality constitutes divorce. Jesus just said in the previous passage that even a lustful look makes one uh, guilty of adultery, which would mean that, that all of us could be divorced at this point. So what is sexual morality referring to? And if you take the Deuteronomy text for what it seems to be saying in the minority school, it seems that it is primarily referring to adulterous relations. It's primarily referring to when adultery has been committed. The word sexual morality, while it could be used broadly, there are times in the New Testament when it's used to refer to adultery specifically. And so it seems like that's what it is primarily referring to, but there could be an extension here to, to unrepentant patterns of sexual sin. When, they, when there is the unrepentant and egregious sexual sin that is not being turned away from, that, that, that could also be considered sexual morality that would be a ground for divorce. And so Jesus teaches that, that this is the one exception and otherwise, divorce would be considered adulterous. Now, we need to interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. We need to read Scripture in light of Scripture. And when we do that, we find in the New Testament, one more legitimate ground for divorce is given. 1 Corinthians 7.15. You can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 7.15. There's a lot of turning today, but it's important for you to see it. Believe for yourself. So 1 Corinthians 7.15. Here, Paul is addressing the situation of, of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Perhaps the uh, believer uh, became a believer after they were married. And he's addressing this situation. He, he says that, that that person should remain in the marriage if the unbeliever is willing to. But in 1 Corinthians 7.15, he, he says this, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So this is depicting that the unbeliever in this marriage leaves the marriage. And, and just so you know, in, in Jesus' day, there was no difference between separation and divorce. There's no category for something that separates that's not divorce. So if, if they separate, if they want to divorce, let it be so. Let that divorce happen. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved to their marriage covenant. God has called you to peace. And so the ground that is given here is the ground of desertion. The ground of the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Now that may, may make you ask, did Jesus miss something when he was teaching on this? Why didn't, why didn't he say, except on the grounds of sexual morality or desertion? Why, why did he just list one? And, and here's what I think we need to remember an important feature about the Sermon on the Mount. 
The whole Sermon on the Mount is calling us to discern the spirit of the law, not the letter. So, so when it comes to uh, divorce, what we're tempted to do is to just want to know the rules. When can I? When can't I? What are the rules? What's inbounds? What's out of bounds? But that, that's really against the whole, the whole spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to discern deeper principles about the law and apply those, not just to be legalistic in how we interpret these specifics. And so uh, if we do that, you could see how you could truly do damage to people and families if, if you just interpret this for the rules and you don't seek to understand the deeper principles. Here's what I believe we can see from these passages, is that these two grounds in Scripture, these two revealed grounds that we have, sexual morality and desertion, that they do reveal a deeper principle. And that deeper principle is this. Divorce is permissible when there is a willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. Divorce is permissible when there is a willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. And sexual morality and desertion are the two grounds that are given that show us when that takes place. Another way you might put it is this, that, that desertion is not just someone physically leaving, physically moving out, but desertion is when someone deserts the covenant, when someone deserts the marriage, when someone deserts uh, the, the covenant that they have made, willfully forsaking their spouse and their vows. Divorce is permissible when there's a willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. Another helpful passage is Exodus 21, 10 and 11. Exodus 21, 10 and 11. Now this passage is referring uh, to different laws regarding slaves, and it is, it is a very different context, and it is not giving us additional grounds necessarily. It's not giving us uh, New Testament grounds for divorce, but it is enlightening to us as we think about this issue. Exodus 21, 10 and 11. Listen to what this says. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so this passage tells us that a husband was to provide food, clothing, and conjugal rights to his wife. And if a husband failed to do any of these three things, the wife was free to leave the marriage. Divorce was permissible. And again, this, this passage doesn't give us additional grounds per se, but it, I think it does give us guidance as to when there has been a willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. Think, think about this. Uh, a food. That, that's provision. A husband's call to provide for his family. When, when a husband refuses to provide for his family, will not work, will not provide, willfully, willfully neglects that duty, a willful failure to provide, or clothing. What is that about? It's about protection, right? So when a husband willfully chooses to not protect his family, you, you may even understand some situations of domestic abuse would fall into this category. A willful failure to protect your family and your spouse. Or a willful refusal to enjoy intimacy with your spouse. All of these, without repentance, could be considered forms of desertion of the marriage. All of these can be considered willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. Here's the thing. There, there, are, there are so many possible scenarios in real life, aren't there, of what is going on in a marriage. And we cannot reduce it to 
two rules or three rules or one rule. We can't, we can't reduce the complexities of real life to, to just what's in bounds and out of bounds. We need to prayerfully discern through the scriptures, through these grounds, through these principles in real life, has there been a willful forsaking of the covenant that would make divorce permissible? And that can only happen in the context of prayer and counsel and time and effort. Divorce is permissible when there's a willful forsaking of the marriage covenant. Now with those grounds and that principle established, back in Matthew, we we can't miss the main thrust of Jesus' teaching. The main thrust of Jesus' teaching here is not, here's when you can get divorced. The main thrust of Jesus' teaching is this. In every other case, divorce is adulterous. In every other case, divorce is considered adultery. We can see the connection between last week and this week. So, so last week we're talking about lust. And, and the, the Pharisees taught that you shall not commit adultery. And, and, and for them, that just meant do not commit the physical act of adultery. But, but to lust after another woman was fine. And here's what they would do. Taking these laws, if they saw another woman that they would rather be with, they would just come up with any reason they could to divorce their spouse, say, I find an indecency in her, I don't want to be with this person anymore, and then they would marry this other person that they were lusting after, and they could say, we've not committed adultery. And Jesus is saying, you cannot treat God's law like there are loopholes in it. There are no loopholes in God's law because God sees your heart. God sees your intentions. And if you divorce someone for any impermissible reason, you are committing adultery. Before God, if the divorce is not on permissible grounds, Jesus says that divorce is adulterous. You are guilty before him. We see the phrase in Matthew 5.32 that this person makes the spouse commit adultery, makes her commit adultery. Adultery, And this is one uh, just rare example where I would say that's not the best translation. Makes her commit adultery. You, you just think about what would, we'd be saying then, first of all, that, that this spouse finds an indecency in his wife, any indecency he wants, divorces her, and now she's guilty of adultery. That doesn't really make sense, does it? The word itself is a passive form of adultery. And we don't really have a word for it, which is why it's hard to translate, but it, it, it would be something like she's been adulterated. She's been adulterated, which, which really is carrying the sense that she's become the victim of adultery. She's become the victim of adultery. And that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what happens in this scenario. He wants to be with another woman. He finds a reason to divorce her. He goes to her, so, so she is now the victim of his adultery. That is what Jesus is saying here. He has committed adultery. It's not the wife who has been sinned against who's guilty. It's, the, it's that she's the victim of it. And so Jesus says that any divorce that's not for a permissible ground is adulterous before the Lord. It is sin. It is wrong. And in applying the second point on on permissible and impermissible grounds, I want to give this warning. An impermissible divorce invites the judgment of God. An impermissible divorce invites the judgment of God. It is adultery. It is sin. Sin will be judged. And if you are pursuing an impermissible divorce, if you're considering a divorce on illegitimate grounds, don't do it. Don't do it. And here's the thing. In our country, you, you could do it, right? That, that, there's, there's no laws against it. It'd be easy. And in our church climate, you know what? You could, you could find a church that wouldn't ask any questions. 
So you could do it. But God sees it all. And divorce invites his judgment when it is not permissible. And so before the Lord, I urge you not to. Not to pursue a divorce on illegitimate grounds. And also, I want to ask this question and application. What if there are legitimate grounds? What if there are legitimate grounds? Though Jesus does come down on the side of the minority school in terms of the exception of sexual morality, he still takes a unique position from them as well. Because here's the thing about the minority school. They said divorce is, is permissible when there's sexual immorality, when there's adultery. But you know what they actually said? They said that if there's been adultery, then you are mandated to divorce. You are required to divorce. And Jesus does not say that. Jesus takes a higher standard than that. Jesus says it is permissible but it is not required. And this is because the weight of the New Testament teaching is toward reconciliation. This is because blessed are the peacemakers. This is because no spouse could ever sin against you the way that you've sinned against God. And God has forgiven you, and forgiveness and reconciliation are always possible in Christ. And so if there are legitimate grounds, the weight of the New Testament's teaching would say to pursue reconciliation before pursuing divorce. Pursue reconciliation first. Though it may be permissible, God would call you to do everything you can to save your marriage. And do this with the counsel of church leaders and of other brothers and sisters in Christ, Listen, even in some of the most painful and difficult situations, with much prayer, with much forgiveness, with much labor, and with much love, God can restore the most broken of marriages. And so seek to reconcile first when there are legitimate grounds, and then walk through this with the counsel and prayers of brothers and sisters and church leaders, with a commitment to glorify God in every scenario and in every step of that process. So we've asked two questions. We've asked, how does God feel about divorce? It grieves the heart of God. We've asked the question, what grounds make divorce permissible? And we've seen that not only on the grounds of, of sexual immorality or desertion is it permissible, only on the grounds of a willful forsaking of the covenant is it permissible. Now the third question, is remarriage after a divorce permissible? Is remarriage after a divorce permissible? And I want to say there are respected Bible teachers who strongly disagree on this question. Pastors that I'm sure you listen to them both, better from them both, who, who come down on opposite sides of this question. Some would say remarriage is never permissible, and others would say remarriage is sometimes permissible. And I believe that Jesus is teaching here that remarriage is sometimes permissible. I believe remarriage is sometimes permissible. The reason I believe this is because of the context of what divorce was in the first century Jewish world. What, what was the purpose of a divorce in the first century world? The, the entire purpose was to remarry someone else. The, the purpose of divorce was not just to be single, it was to get out of the marriage so that you could be in a different marriage. And this is why God gave a certificate of divorce. In Deuteronomy, why was it so important for there to be a certificate of divorce for the woman? 
so that she could show that she could legitimately remarry someone else. As that passage shows, she does remarry. And if that husband divorces her, then he needs to give for a certificate of divorce. Divorce included the, the notion of remarriage within it. If there was a, a legal divorce, it included the notion of remarriage. This is a quote from Andy Nacelli, who wrote extensively on divorce and remarriage in an essay. And he, he says this after his studies, Divorce in the Jewish and the Greco-Roman context always included the right to remarry. And then listen to this. The standard wording on rabbinic divorce certificates was this. You are allowed to marry any man you wish. That was standard wording on a certificate of divorce. You are allowed to marry any man you wish. And so Jesus does nothing in this passage to to undo that. He does nothing in this passage to undo that assumption and say, I'm also teaching that you can't ever remarry. No, he says that whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery, and that's in the context of the exception clause. Whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery still has reference to except for sexual immorality. So, so think about uh, one more verse, Matthew 19.9. Again, that other passage in Matthew on this, on this, he says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if the grounds are there, then the remarriage is permissible. Here's the answer to this question, according to my interpretation this morning, is if the divorce was permissible, then remarriage is also permissible. But if the divorce was sinful, then the remarriage is also sinful. If the divorce was permissible, then remarriage is also permissible. But if the divorce was sinful, then the remarriage is also sinful. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whoever divorces except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So remarriage is permissible when the grounds are permissible. And listen, I just want to say this in application. Maybe it's you, maybe it's someone you know, but everyone has a past. And we need to know at this point that wrongful divorce and remarriage are not unforgivable sins. They're not unforgivable sins. Yes, yes, you've committed adultery, but adultery is not an ever-present state of sin that you are forever in now. No, you committed adultery, and now you must repent and seek to reconcile and seek to glorify God moving forward. God's word to someone in that situation is simple. Repent and then remain. Repent and remain in the state you are in. If you are single, pursue remarriage with your spouse, but if you are married, then remain in that marriage and, and live faithfully in that marriage. But know that, that if, if you have sinned in these ways, that there is forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fourth question this morning, what should you do to protect your marriage from divorce? What should you do to protect your marriage from divorce? And I am aware that I'm preaching to a congregation that is full of young marriages. Many of us have not yet hit the 10-year mark. My wife and I are about to hit the 10-year mark, which means that we have not been married very long. We have a lot of marriage in front of us. My prayer and desire is that we would protect our marriages 
and that in 20, 30, 40 years, we would be celebrating one another's golden anniversaries for the glory of Christ. What should we do to protect our marriage from divorce? First, value the sanctity of marriage. Value the sanctity of marriage. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Embrace the weighty reality that marriage is a covenant before God that is designed for His glory. Embrace that reality. Take, Take your marriage seriously. Prioritize your marriage. Cultivate your marriage. Enjoy your marriage. It's a gift. Your marriage is a gift from God. Value it and enjoy it and give yourself to it with everything you have. It is the most important relationship in your life. Value the sanctity of marriage. Second, represent the mystery of marriage. Represent the mystery of marriage. Listen, the one who's speaking these words on divorce is not just some random preacher. All right? This, this is not just some, some random dude telling us his thoughts on divorce. No, this is Jesus Christ who is in himself, the very center of the meaning of marriage. I mean, this is the one that marriage is all about, is Jesus. Ephesians 5, 31, 32 tell us that God designed marriage in Genesis to be a living picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. That when God designed marriage, when God thought of marriage, that the whole purpose of it was, was that God was putting into his creation a picture of the gospel, a picture of what Jesus would do for his church and of the church's response to his love. And, and so Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. This, this is how God has designed marriage to be a living picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And this means that your marriage, listen, this means that your marriage is not fundamentally about you. Your marriage isn't about you. It's about Him. It's about Christ. You are married for Christ. You are married for the glory of Christ. And your marriage is an opportunity to display the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. That's what marriage is. That is the mystery of marriage that we are each called and given grace to represent. And so what this means is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, not because your wife is so extremely lovable, but as an expression of your worship to Christ. It's worship. It's about Him. It's not about her. It's not about you. It's about Him. And so represent that in your marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, not because your husband is so worthy of your submission, because he's not, but Christ is. Christ is worthy of your submission to your husband as a picture of your submission to Christ as part of the church. Protect your marriage by committing to live out the mystery of marriage for Christ's sake. That's the protecting marriage. You remember, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about my happiness. It's not about, it's not about um, the, the kind of life I pictured living. God may call you to a difficult marriage. You may be in a difficult marriage your whole life. Commit to that marriage for the glory of Christ. Display the gospel of Christ in continuing to love your spouse. 
and continue to be faithful to your spouse just as Christ is faithful to us. So protect your marriage by valuing the sanctity of marriage, representing the mystery of marriage, and then third, by seeking the church's help in your marriage. Seeking the church's help in your marriage. Listen, marriage is hard. Marriage is hard, one, because, because men and women are different, right? Like, we're different. We, 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 we think differently. We, we communicate differently. And, and, and those differences in themselves uh, create lots of uh, difficulties to work through. Marriage is hard, but, but more than just our differences, marriage is hard because we're sinners. Marriage is hard because we're sinners, and sin, sin is real. It's not, just, it's not just one sinner, it's two sinners. Two sinners that have said, let's, let's live together for the rest of our lives. It's not an equation for, for happiness. Right? Marriage is hard. Sin is real. It's in your marriage. Our hearts are deceitful. But listen, the quickest way to divorce is to keep your marriage struggles to yourself. That's the quickest path. Keep your marriage struggles to yourself. Don't tell anyone about it. Keep, keep happy faces when you're here in this building. And don't tell anyone that you're struggling in your marriage. And, and you'll be divorced soon. The quickest way to divorce is to keep your marriage struggles to yourself. But listen, there's no better place to turn for help in your marriage in the whole world than your local church. I believe that there's no better place for help in your marriage than, than this group of people right here. Why? One, because the church upholds the sanctity of marriage. We, 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 we believe this. We have, we have conviction about this. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is God's good intention and design. We, we uphold that and we will uphold it for your marriage. The church understands what marriage is all about. The world doesn't understand what marriage is about. The world doesn't understand that marriage refers to Christ and the church and that your calling is to display the gospel in your marriage. But the church understands that. That's that's what we are all about. We are all about glorifying Christ in every context of our lives, including marriage. The church holds out the scriptures to you. The church holds out the word of God, which gives us everything we need for godliness, which gives us everything we need for life. Every challenge in marriage can be met by the word of God. The word is completely sufficient for your marriage struggles. And the church holds out the scriptures to you. And specifically, the local church, this room of people, this is a community of brothers and sisters who have covenanted with you to love you, pray for you, and bear your burdens with you. You are loved by the people in this room. The people in this room want your marriage to succeed. And the people in this room want want you to glorify God in your marriage. And the people in this room have committed themselves to pray for you and love you. What what better group of people, what what better place could you go for help in your marriage than your local church? And listen, we all will have marital struggles. And, and my, my call this morning is that when you are struggling, do not keep it to yourself. Tell a brother, tell a sister, tell your discipleship group, talk to a pastor, talk to a counselor, but turn to the local church as your resource. And along those lines, church, I, I just want to close this sermon with a prayer for our marriages. I'm going to close this sermon with a prayer for our marriages and that the Lord would help us, that the Lord would be glorified and the gospel would be magnified through our marriages to one another. Father, we come to you this morning and 
Uh, we thank you for your help, Lord. I know that there are more questions, and I pray that you would continue to teach us and give clarity where there is confusion on anything relating to marriage and divorce and remarriage and all the particulars that may come. But Lord, your word is clear that marriage is good. And your intention is that it would last a lifetime as a picture of your faithful love to us through Christ. And Lord, we want to pray right now that you would help us when sin tempts us to lust after another spouse or when sin tempts us to, to choose selfishness over the glory of Christ or when sin against us discourages us and we are tempted to grow bitter and hard toward our spouse. Lord, we want to pray for your help. Lord, your help to grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that we would represent the gospel well in our marriages. Father, we live in a culture that has completely rejected your plan for marriage. Many people aren't even getting married anymore. And Lord, we want you to be glorified and we want to be salt and light in this culture in our marriages. So Lord, we pray that you would help and grow and cultivate and sustain husbands and wives in our covenant commitments to one another. And we pray that as a church, we would come around each other in our covenant commitment to one another as church members to walk with each other in pursuing your glory and the joy of all people through our covenant commitments in marriage, Lord. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ and Jesus that you loved us and gave yourself for us that you might present us to yourself without blemish and splendor for yourself forever. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and then to move toward our spouse in love. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.